0: What's going on everybody and welcome to another edition of the Mad Nucleus podcast and I'm your host for those that do know and those that don't know I'm Justin Felton and thank you all for listening once again. As the title says today we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of a movie by the name of Blade Runner that dropped not today, but yesterday on June 25th, 1982. Okay. Let's dive into how this project came about. So, without further ado, let's get straight to the topic. Okay. Blade Runner is a 1982 science fiction film directed by Ridley Scott and adapted by Hampton Fancher and David Peebles. Starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Howard, Sean Young, and Edward James Almost, along with Daryl Hannah, James Hong, and M. Emmett Walsh. It is an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The film is set in a dystopian future, Los Angeles of 2019 in which synthetic humans known as replicants are bioengineered by the powerful Terrell Corporation to work on space colonies. When a fugitive group of advanced replicants led by Roy Batty, Howard, escapes back to Earth, burnt out cop Rick Deckard, Ford, reluctantly agrees to hunt them down. All right. So... You're dealing with a typical or what you think is a typical science fiction film of humans hunting robots. But that's not the case here. No, 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 no. They did something different. Let's dive into some of the history and the production design, all that other good stuff, shall we? All right. <clears throat> Blade Runner initially underperformed in North American theaters and polarized critics. Some praised its thematic complexity and visuals, while others critiqued its slow pacing and lack of action. It later became an acclaimed cult film regarded as one of the all-time best science fiction films. Yeah. I have to agree with the critics on this one. The lack of action and the slow pacing is kind of a killer. But you cannot deny it's cinematography, its visual effects and its thematic complexity, like it says. I mean, it it was out of its world on that, but man, it could have used some more action scenes. Man, it could have been faster paced. It could have been even longer. They probably got a longer cut of the movie, which they did not want to show, but we'll see. I doubt if they release any more cuts of this movie. Held from its production design depicting a high-tech and but decaying future, Blade Runner is often regarded as both a leading example of neo-noir cinema as well as foundational work of the cyberpunk genre. The film's soundtrack, composed by Vangelis, was nominated in 1982 for a BAFTA and a Golden Globe as Best Original Score. I suspect John Williams may have won those awards for ET in 1982 the film has influenced many science fiction films video games anime and television series it brought the work of Philip K Dick to the attention of Hollywood and several later big budget films were based on his work such as Total Recall in 1990 Minority Report in 2002 and A Scanner Darkly in 2006 In 1993, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And that I would have to agree. I have to agree with that. I mean, if you looked at this film the way it looks, it's it. Now, what it was about, People did not understand it, but what it was about was not so much as humans hunting robots because robots are bad. These robots started to develop minds of their own and they wanted to branch out and they would stop at nothing and kill anybody that stood in their way, even if they were helping them. The movie was simply about memories implanted in the minds of these replicants. memories from the deceased whose brains was fresh and they translated, transferred their memories into these replicant brains and as a recreation of what we think somebody should be. And somehow, some way, um, some type of anomaly or algorithm that couldn't be explained Of human emotions, which is a very powerful thing, you know, caused a group of replicants to think for their, think for self, think on their own, act on these memories and these emotions and stuff It's, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at that. That's, that's how you gotta look at the film, but people were expecting a little bit more action. You know, I was too for a two hour movie. Seven different versions of Blade Runner exist as a result of controversial changes requested by the studio executives. Warner Brothers again. Always Warner Brothers, don't it? A director's cut was released in 1992 after a strong response to test screenings of a work print. This in conjunction with the film's popularity as a video rental made it one of the earliest movies to be released on DVD in 2007, Warner Brothers released The Final Cut, a 25th anniversary digitally remastered version. This is the only version over which Scott retained artistic control. Yeah. Warner Brothers, always Warner Brothers. Did they not learn from Wes Craven and Richard Donner? Not really, Scott. And of course, most recently, you know who, I'm not going to mention his name, but let's say they ran afoul of Christopher Nolan, and even Patty Jenkins. But I'm not going to mention the other guy's name. It might trigger somebody. But you, you know what it be because of, oh, man, we, we're not going to get into that, man. We're not going to get into that. <laughs> oh. Okay, moving along. The film is the first of the franchise of the same name. A sequel directed by Dennis Villeneuve entitled Blade Runner 2049 was released in October 2017 alongside a trilogy of short films covering the 30 year span between the two film settings. The anime series Blade Runner Black Lotus was released in 2021 and I recommend any anime or any Blade Runner fan or anybody that's curious to go watch that series, the Blade Runner Black Lotus. It is very good, plenty of action. It explains some things And they need to make more. They need to make more. Let's just say if you desire more, that means it's very good. They need to really make more. That's just my opinion. I mean, could I explain the plot to you? No, you want to watch the movie. I already gave you, you know, pretty much the big portion of the plot, but I'm not going to explain the entire movie to you. But we're going to dive into the production so let's see all right they're gonna go to the development process of philip k dick's adaptation of the novel do androids dream of electric sheep developed shortly after its 1968 publication director martin scorsese was interested in filming the novel but never optioned it producer herb jaffe optioned it In the early 1970s. But Dick was unimpressed. With the screenplay written by Herb's son. Robert saying. Jaffe's screenplay was so terribly done. Robert flew down to Santa Ana. To speak with me about the project. And the first thing. I said to him. When he got off the plane was. Shall I beat you up here. At the airport. Or shall I beat you up. Back at my apartment. Now that's passion for work. I think several people need to be beat up. Warner Brothers has a terrible track record of doing this type of stuff to people. And then they go and hire these incompetent, know nothing fools to do the bidding. So plenty of people deserve to be beat up. But I can't say I blame Warner on that one but the fact that somebody really thought that they could write a screenplay about somebody else's work without fully understanding it is an insult and a slap in the face, and I just think that they deserve the slap in the face back. Do better. Do better. The screenplay by Hampton Fancher was optioned in 1977. Producer Michael Dealey became interested in Fancher's draft and convinced director Ridley Scott to film it. Scott had previously declined the project, but after leaving the slow production of Dune, wanted a faster-paced project to take his mind off his older brother's recent death. Poor guy. He lost Tony, his younger brother, a few years back, and he lost an older brother. You know, it, it forces you to want to root for Ridley to do well in everything he does. You know, I know that that's kind of like, you know, just make good movies. We root for good movies anyway. And of course, maybe his tragedies drive him to make these great films that he's made throughout the course of his career. So he joined the project on February 21st, 1980, and managed to push up the promised film ways financing from 13 million to 15 million. Fancher's script focused more on environmental issues and less on issues of humanity. And religion, which are prominent in the novel, and Scott wanted changes. Fancher found a cinema treatment by William S. Barrows for Will- Alan E. Norris's novel *The Blade Runner*, entitled *Blade Runner: A Movie*. Scott liked the name, so dearly obtained the rights to the titles. Eventually, he hired David Peoples to write rewrite the script, and Fancher left the job over the issue on December 21st, 1980, although he later returned to contribute additional rewrites. Okay. Having invested over $2.5 million in pre-production as the date of commencement of principal photography near, Filmways withdrew financial backing In 10 days, Deedly had sourced $21.5 million in financing through a three-way deal between The lag Company the Hong Kong-based producer Sir Run Run Shaw and Tandem Productions. Wow, Sir Run Run Shaw had a hand in producing this movie. The Run Run Shaw who ran Shaw Brothers along with his brother, Rummy Shaw, who had passed away a few years after this. Wow. And I didn't even know that. I really didn't. Shaw Brothers has a producer credit on this. So if if Shaw Brothers, if, if Blade Runner, if you go to that Shaw Brothers library in Hong Kong and you see Blade Runner on it, it would surprise you. But now that I'm telling you that, they had a hand in producing this movie. So it is a part of their library or it should be. Incredible, ain't it? I did not know that before reading this. You learn something new every day, folks. All right, let's move further along to the... Dick became concerned that no one had informed him about the film's production, which added to his distrust of Hollywood. If somebody says don't trust Hollywood, don't trust them. After Dick criticized an early version of Fincher's uh, script in an article written for the Los Angeles Select TV guy. The studio sent Dick the Peebles rewrite although Dick died shortly before the film's release he was pleased with the rewritten script and with a 20 minute minute special effects test reel that was screened for him when he was invited to the studio. Despite his well-known skepticism of Hollywood in principle, Dick enthused to Scott that the world created for the film looked exactly as he imagined it. He said, I saw a segment of Douglas Trumbull's special effects for Blade Runner on the KNBC News. I recognized it immediately. It was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly. He also approved of the film script, saying, after I finished reading the screenplay, I got the novel out and looked through it. The two reinforce each other so that someone who started with the novel would enjoy the movie and someone who started with the movie would enjoy the novel. The motion picture was dedicated to Dick. Principal photography of Blade Runner began on March ninth, 1981 and ended four months later. In 1992, Ford revealed Blade Runner is not one of my favorite films. I tangled with Ridley. Apart from friction with the director, Ford also disliked the voiceovers. He said, when we started shooting, it had to been it had been tactically agreed that the version of the film that we had agreed upon was the version without voiceover narration. It was effing, it was an effing nightmare. I thought that the film had worked without the narration, but now I was stuck recreating that narration and I was obliged to do the voiceovers for people that did not represent the director's interests. I went kicking and screaming to the studio to record it. The narration monologues were written by an uncredited Roland Kibbe. In 2006, Scott was asked, who's the biggest pain in the arse you've ever worked with? He replied, it's gotten to be Harrison. He'll forgive me because now I get on with him. Now he's become charming. But he knows a lot. That's the problem. When we worked together, it was my first film up. And I was the new kid on the block. But we made a good movie. Ford said of Scott in 2000, I admire his work. We had a bad patch there. I'm over it. In 2006, Ford reflected on the production of the the film saying, what I remember more than anything else is when I see Blade Runner, It's not the 50 nights of shooting in the rain, but the voiceover. I was still obliged to work for these clowns that came in writing one bad voiceover for another. Ridley Scott confirmed in the summer 2007 issue of Total Film that Harrison Ford contributed to the Blade Runner special uh, edition DVD and had already recorded his interviews. Harrison's fully on board, said Scott. Hmm. I guess that's that. I, I have that DVD. And I don't remember watching these special features on it. Maybe I have not, but I may go back and look look at it, and just to see what they had to say, what all everybody who were involved and participated had to say in the special features. So, you know, the casting—they check this out. People considered for the lead role: Gene Hackman. Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Peter Falk, Nick Nolte, Al Pacino, and Burt Reynolds. Wow, A-listers galore. I don't think all of them would have been suited for the role. I think some of them looking at them, but all of them, I'm like, nah, this ain't it for them. One in particular, I know nah, this ain't it for them. One role that was not difficult to cast was Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty. He was he was poetic, crazy, creative, everything. I mean, th- his role was everything in this movie, bro. The violent yet thoughtful leader of the replicants. Scott cast Howard without even meeting him, based on solely on Howard's performance in Paul Vaughens movie Scott had seen. Katie Tipple. Soldier of Orange and Turkish Delight. Howard's portrayal of Batty was regarded by Philip K. Dick as the perfect Batty, cold, Aryan, and flawless. One of the many films Howard made, Blade Runner was his favorite. As he explained in a live chat in 2001, Blade Runner needs no explanation. It just is. All of the best. There is nothing like it. To be a part of a real masterpiece which changed the world's thinking. It's awesome. Howard rewrote his character's tears in the rain speech himself and presented the words to Scott on set prior to filming. That speech was very moving, folks. Now, I'm going to say that. If you watched or seen this movie. It's rare for the bad guy to help out the good guy. And when he has something to say, as the good guy, you're inclined and obliged to hear what he has to say and realize I wasn't chasing a bad guy. I was chasing bad memories. That tears in the rain speech was so touching, so appropriate. And it stands the test of time. That's what I'm going to say about that. Blade Runner used a number of lesser known actors like Sean Young, who portrays Rachel, an experimental replicant, implanted with the memories of Tyrell's niece, causing her to believe she is human. Nina Axelrod auditioned for the role. Daryl Hannah portrays Pris, a basic pleasure model. Replicant. Stacey Nelkin auditioned for the role but was given another part in the film which was ultimately cut from before filming. Dang. Debbie Harry turned down the role of Pris. Casting Pris and Rachel was challenging, requiring several teen screen tests with Morgan Paul playing the role of Deckard. Paul was cast as Deckard's fellow bounty hunter, Holden, based on his performances in the tests. Brian James' Portrays Leon Kowalski, a combat and laborer replicant, and Joanna Cassidy portrays Zora, an assassin replicant. Edward James Almost portrays Gav. Almost drew on diverse ethnic sources to help create the fictional city speak language his character uses in the film. His initial portrayal, his initial address, excuse me, to Deckard at the noodle bar is partly in hungarian and means horse dick bullshit no way you are the blade blade runner emmy Walsh portrays captain Bryant, a rumpled hard drinking and underhanded police veteran typical of the film noir genre yep watch any film noir tra- genre cops hands are either forced or they just downright dirty it forces them to do underhand stuff joe turkle portrays dr eldon tyrell a corporate mogul who built an empire on genetically manipulated humanoid slaves william sanderson was cast as jf sebastian a quiet and lonely genius who provides a compassionate yet compliant portrait of humanity jf sympathizes with the replicants whom he sees as companions and he shares their shorter lifespan due to his rapid aging disease Joe Pantoliano had earlier been considered for the role. James Hong portrays Hannibal Chew, an elderly geneticist specializing in synthetic eyes. And High Pike portrayed the sleazy bar owner Taffy Lewis in a single take, something almost unheard of with Scott, whose drive for perfection resulted at times in double-digit takes, which I guess that's a good thing, though. The design was crazy. I mean, some of this stuff I can't read because it's in French, the French names. But here's something here's a tidbit here. The extended end scene in the original theatrical release shows Rachel and Decker traveling into daylight with pastoral aerial shots filmed by director Stanley Kubrick. Ridley Scott contacted Kubrick about using some of his surplus helicopter aerial photography from The Shining. How about that? One brilliant filmmaker to another seeking consultation. Now that, folks, is respect. Dignity to the art. It's just too bad that one director I know of isn't like that. It doesn't, it thinks, thinks that, you know, he walks on water, and I won't say his name because I had already discussed him on another podcast, but that's divine respect for the art, man, what I just read to you. And I'm sure it still exists in today's world, but you got to tip your hat. Clap your hands and give a standing ovation to that. Seriously. The spinner is the genetically is the genetic term for the fictional flying cars used in the film. They used check this out. They used everything internal combustion jet and anti-gravity for it. And that car is in the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame in Seattle, Washington. So for those who want to peep that, that's into that, those designs, you know, go to Seattle, go to go, go to Seattle. That's where it's at. So, you know, if I'm ever there, I know I need to go check that place out just to see what they got other than that. Two of those cars ended up in Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Hmm. Interesting, right? And let's check out the music. Vangelis just came off of a Academy Award winning score with Cherry to Fire. But he composed and perform music on his synthesizers and one net. Synthesizers was looked down upon. Very few people use them. And if you use them, you use them in bits and pieces throughout the soundtrack, but you would never use them heavily. But this man won an Academy Award using pure synthesizers in a time where traditional orchestral instruments were still king. You could say he, this guy broke the mold or laid groundwork for guys like Junkie XL and um, and a few others. Vangelis uh, passed away recently. Um, so sad to hear about his death, but the dude could make some good music. And I think his work largely went under underappreciated to me. I mean, it was nominated for BAFTA and Golden Globe, Globe awards, Golden Globe awards, excuse me. And so many versions of his soundtrack has been released throughout the years as well. The special effects, oh man, the special effects stands the test of time in this movie. If you ever looked at a movie, there are movies you look at, science fiction films you look at, and you'd be like, okay, that's what they were using at the time. And then you look at movies, and look at uh, and say, yeah, man, this is bad. This looks fake bad. Then, then you look at the other movies and be like, wow. I can't believe it was made this particular year. And Blade Runner, if you put a group of people who never saw the movie, know nothing about the movie. They only heard the movie by name and passing. And. You would show them shots of the movie, of the best special effects of the movie. Just show them shots and have them guess what year that this came out. I guarantee you they would sit up there and say, some point of the 2000s or either either in the 2010s. And these people would have high shock value. And you would tell them, nah, this movie was made in 1982 or came out in 1982 And they'd look at you and each other with their mouths wide open like they were shocked. That movie was made in 1982 and it looked like it came out in 2015 or something like that. That is timeless special effects there. I bet you the special effects team went to sleep that night with visions each of them had the same visions when they went to sleep and they probably said you know i dreamed about this last night and that last night you did me too man yeah me too me too so let's all put it all together and that's what they did and you got one of the most visually stunning grand spectacles ever put on film with this Let's talk about the themes. I didn't. I mean. What do you take from a movie after you watch it? What are the themes of a movie? If it makes any kind of sense, even if it's a bad movie, but if it makes sense, what do you take from it? And, you know, the themes of a movie. This film operates on multiple dramatic and narrative levels. It employs some of the conventions of film noir, among them the character of a film fatel narration by the protagonist in the original release. You know, genetic engineering, classical Greek drama, and hubris. It draws from biblical images such as Noah's blood, literary sources such as Frankenstein and William Blake. Religious symbolism, classic dramatic themes, and film noir techniques. High tech gadgetry, everything. A filmmaker wants to incorporate a a piece of just about anything in it and hope to put it together coherently. And it was. This movie wasn't about... uh, shooting lasers and hunting robots that would have been a senseless movie with a bunch of that of action but this movie was about memories transferred to genetically altered humanoids robots androids what you want to call it and their memories are so strong and so potent you know what they remember what is what they remember but their lifespan is short due to what they had to work with with the technology They explain it in a nutshell. The cultural impact has a cult status because it was not well-received originally when it first came out. It has influenced video games, anime, and television programs. Producers reimagining of Battlestar Galactica have both cited Blade Runner as one of the major influences for the show. So when they... Rebooted Battlestar Galactica. They looked at that because that was, like I said a few minutes ago, the gold standard in visual effects. We already went through the National Registry, the Visual Effects Society in 2007. uh, It was named the second most visually influential film of all time by the Visual uh, Effects Society. But what was number one? Maybe I need to look into that. The film was also a subject of parody, of course. Ghost in the Shell was inspired by it, was influenced by it. The cyberpunk genre, biotechnology. Like I said, genetic engineering. Deuce R. Mechamur, the Singaporean van, van and It influenced a bunch of adventure games, uh, logos like Atari, Bell, Coca-Cola, Cuisinart, Pan Am, and RCA, all market leaders at the time, were prominently prominently displayed as product placement in the film. Elon Musk is inspired by Blade Runner. Ooh, not a popular name to be talking about, but this is what it says. I mean, media recognition. American Film Institute. It's 100 years, 100 thrills at number 74. 10th anniversary number 97. Top 10 to 10 at number six for science fiction film. All these these magazines like Empire, IGN, and Total Film. Have them in their top 100, 25, 50, whatever. I don't feel like going through with them. I'm, I'm too lazy for that. Other media. What do they got here? Documentaries. I mean, this film went from being eh, to over time being considered something greater than what it was recognized for. When you start to pay attention on, a, let's say, a rainy day, a do-nothing weather day, and you just pop on Blade Runner, and your focus is there. You're you're clearly understanding what this movie is about, and you find solace. You like it. I can't believe I slept on this before. I didn't get on this sooner. And you like it. And all it took was a do-nothing day to get you to like it. So I suggest y'all on a rainy day, a day that you're all off, you have nothing to do, pop this movie on. It's on Netflix. Let's see. Let me check. Ah, the power of Google. It's on Netflix, HBO Max, YouTube for $4, Voodoo for $4, Google Play Movies and TV for $4, and Amazon Prime for $4, if you're willing to pay. Those are the streaming platforms is on. You know, of course, you know, if you got any pirate sites, you can pirate that as well. And that's what you'll get. This movie, um, financially, though they don't talk about it because it didn't do well financially. This was a $30 million budget, but it only grossed $41.6 million. The power of critics panned it. And people believed in the critics back then, so they didn't go and see it. Not for self. But if they re released, if they did, I can't say now, but you know, if it was something totally different like now, it would probably make more money. So, you know, in a nutshell, folks, you know, that is my conclusion of the 40th anniversary of the Blade Runner. And I hope you enjoyed everything that I told you about it. There was probably more I could have said, but I'm, like I said, I'm a little too lazy. And I am a little tied up and preoccupied. But I hope you join me next time for another edition of the Mad Nucleus podcast. And I shall see you all very soon. But in the meantime, peace and love. Thanks for coming out. God bless you. Good day. Good night.